I don't think a year goes by that somebody at some point after some service does not come up to me in line and say, how about we just do away with that prayer of confession? And, and I smile a little bit and I look into their eyes and I say, tell me more about that. Why do you think that would be a good idea? And the individual explains, because it is such a downer. The music pastor, the, the marvelous message, the fellowship, the beauty of the surroundings, all of it lifts me up, but that experience of the being told what a sinner I am just drags me down. And I just think our worship service would be better if we left it out. It is really hard, I think, to disagree on some level with that sentiment. I feel it myself some days when we're offering the prayer of confession. I'm thinking, ooh, oh, that, ooh, that was personal. Oh, that's so heavy. Am I really that bad? And the implication of my own feelings, like the comment of that person that comes up to me from year to year, is that we ought to save confession for the murderers and the molesters, for the Ponzi schemers and the pension fund raiders, for the serious haters and the herders out there, and not for basically, by and large, good people like you and me. And, and if it's difficult, honestly, to understand or even really remember why we need to get on our knees and confess our sins here, how much harder is it to really remember the part we play in what happened here? How much tougher is it to get our place in the story of Good Friday? In that way, I suppose we're something like one of the bit players in the story. We're a little bit like that tourist just passing through town for the Passover, man by the name of Simon Cyrene. And maybe especially as he gets portrayed in that graphic film of several years back, The Passion of the Christ. You may recall from that story how Simon gets pulled out of the crowd by the Roman soldiers who see that Jesus cannot carry the weight of the cross on his own. And and they require Simon to play a part in carrying the cross as Jesus follows behind. And you can just see the expression on Simon's face. He looks at the callow glint in the eyes of those hardened soldiers, those power-drunk soldiers. He apparently looks around at the revved-up, frenzied crowd, and he puts two and two together. And he quite accurately concludes, if I'm not very careful, I could get killed here. 
I mean, I could just get caught up in all of this stuff, swept up in it, and crucified too. These people could forget who I am and end up crucifying me like this criminal. And so Simon speaks up, and I quote him in the film, remember, he says, remember, I am an innocent man carrying the cross of a condemned man. Do you ever feel that way? Even remotely that way? When you get to this service each year? Why should I, an innocent man, an innocent woman, be forced to get so close to this cross? I mean, Jesus did what had to be done there. Why should I be dragged up into close proximity with that cross again? Why should I, who try very hard to keep myself, relatively speaking, quite clean, get caught up in all of this gore? Why does Jesus take what really could be this quite happy meal amongst friends and taint it by speaking of his blood poured out and his body given up in this very barbaric, raw way. Why does he say that every time we go out and we eat anywhere, we ought to do that in remembrance of him? Could we not improve this whole Easter celebration by just simply leaving this downer night out? Remember, I'm an innocent man simply wearing, walking under, looking at the cross of a condemned man. What Simon of Cyrene couldn't remember on that Good Friday is that he had things exactly backward. The only innocent man there that day was actually the one carrying the cross. Everybody else in the scene without exception, stood condemned, though they they just didn't get it. The person who would rather upgrade the car or the techno toy than feed starving kids, and who makes that kind of decision a lot, the person who fully expects forgiveness from God for all kinds of failings, but who has largely written off scores of other people as worthless, stupid, outsiders. The woman who who scorches souls with her speech. The man who lusts and who leers after women as if they were meat instead of the daughters 
of the Heavenly Father. The person who exalts in all that they have earned instead of praising God for all that they have received by grace. The people so busy impressing others while their spouse or their kids or their neighbor stands in desperate need of love. And everyone that we are and everyone that we know, we are actually the condemned ones. Were we to be held up against the standard of God's holy righteousness, none of us could stand. None of us could claim to be forgiven, saved on our own merits. You know, some years ago, I I spent several weeks traveling through the mountain villages um, in central Ecuador. And uh, it was my first exposure, other than a trip to Mexico now and then, of very different living conditions than I had grown up in. And the Quechua people that I met there lived amidst what seemed to me, and frankly was, the most mind-numbing kind of squalor. The, The disease and the disfigured bodies were just heartbreaking. The bugs... And the stench were positively overwhelming at times. People were literally living in holes in the ground and calling that home. And they were feeding on rotten food. And they were prizing garbage as possessions. But they did not know it. Why? Because everyone, within traveling distance for the average person there, lived exactly the same way. They had no picture of what a genuine, healthy human being, what an even more abundant life truly looked like. And that's our problem, too. It's the reason we think of ourselves, I know I do, as largely innocent people, people who have little to do with bringing about the cross of Christ. We we just don't get how sin-sick our souls are or how disfigured or how undeveloped is our love. The Bible says that the one fully healthy being in the universe looks upon us as you or I might view those mountain villagers I met. Only the gap between his life and condition and ours is vastly greater than between the first and the developing world. Psalm 14 declares, and I quote, that the Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who really seek God, but all have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good by the standard of God, not even one, no one. And this is why Jesus commands us to remember his cross. Because what he was doing 
at the table was pointing to the cross. The cup poured, the bread broken, was a pointer to what he would do within hours upon the cross. It's why he commands us to remember him and the events of Good Friday. He does it for two reasons, I think. For two reasons. And this is the first one. Remembering helps us to see our sin and our need of a Savior. What I want to ask you tonight is to find yourself in the crowd of Good Friday. Where's Waldo? Where's Dan? Where's Susan? Where's Lauren? Where's Frank? Find yourself in the crowd. Do you see yourself in the swiveling loyalty of Peter? Oh, I'm all in. I'm so for you, God. I mean, we live in a society where there are all kinds of people that aren't as committed as I am. And then the pressure is on, and you fold. And you don't live out his way. Is there anything of him in you? Or do you recognize yourself in, in, in Judas? That's a wild connection. A guy who's along for the ride, seriously along for the ride with Christ, who is willing to love others until it doesn't pan out quite the way he'd anticipated, until it gets very hard, until it doesn't reward in the way he wanted. And so when it stops paying off, you start looking for other supplies for your ego, your identity, your meaning, your purpose in life. Or maybe you see yourself in the self-serving pilot, just trying to keep your position in life. Or the entertainment-driven Herod. My goodness, God stood before him. And he was Xboxing it. Jesus be a game for me. Do you see yourself perhaps in, in Barabbas? Somebody more cold-hearted. Somebody more guilty than a lot of people in this room know. But you know. Maybe you're like that cynical thief on the cross thinking God's main job is to get you out of the scrape when you get in it. Bad things are happening to me. God, you're you're not doing your job. It's not working for me. Or perhaps you're like the Pharisees, all righteousness on the outside, but a lot of hypocrisy, a lot of rotting within. You know what really bugs me? I'm every one of those people. And and, and for me, what makes it even worse 
is the perfect health of Jesus in comparison that, that shows me the squalor of my soul. I mean, here he is under the most devastating pressure continuing to love people, continuing to trust his father. Here he is brutalized beyond imagination. I mean, do you, do you know why he died in three hours, right? You know why. I mean, people didn't usually die in just three hours on the cross. It's because they had so wrecked him before he even got there, ripped the body apart. <laughs> and yet he cries out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And I watch him enduring suffering, not to save himself, but to save the lives of others. And I know in the depth of my being that this is the only kind of love, this is the only kind of life that's going to fix this broken world we've made for ourselves. And because I fall so short of that life, I remember as I recall the cross how much I need a Savior. Do you? Do you remember tonight how much you need a Savior? There is, however, a second and final reason that Christ commands us to remember the events of Good Friday, I think. It is because remembering also helps us to take in the wonder of his redeeming love. Harvard psychologist M. Scott Pack once wrote, I I cannot be any more specific about the methodology of love. And keep in mind, okay, he's an Ivy League-educated psychologist who'd spent decades in interactions with broken people. And this is what he writes. I I cannot describe or be any more specific about the methodology of love than to quote these words of an old priest who spent many years in the battle for love. And this is what the old priest said. There are dozens of ways to deal with evil and several ways to conquer it. All of them are facets of the truth that the only ultimate way to conquer evil is to let it be smothered. Smothered within a willing, living human being. When evil is absorbed there like blood in a sponge or a spear into one's heart, it loses its power And goes no further. In the cross of Christ, God meets you and me, our needy world, with the one heart that is large enough to absorb all of the sin of the world, to take every bit of it into himself and take away its sting. Remove its power. 
Philip Yancey writes, I just wish that someone with the talents of Milton or Dante would render the scene that must have transpired in hell, in the place of evil, on the day that Jesus died. No doubt an infernal celebration broke out, says Yancey. The snake of Genesis had struck at the heel of God. The dragon of Revelation had devoured devoured the child at last. From the beginning to the end, evil had won the day. God's son, sent to earth on a rescue mission, had ended up dangling from a cross like some ragged scarecrow. Oh, what a diabolical victory. And oh, what a short-lived victory. In the most ironic twist of all history, writes Yancey, what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. Jesus' death on the cross bridged the gap between a perfect God and a fatally flawed humanity. On the day that we call Good Friday, writes Yancey, God defeated sin, routed death, triumphed over Satan, and got his family back. Not bad. Right? Not bad. In that act of transformation, God took the worst deed of history and turned it into the greatest victory. No wonder the symbol never went away. No wonder Jesus commanded that we never forget. And so, we won't forget. On this night, which is like no other, we will join with the centuries and the billions that have gone before us. We will join with the sentiments of John Newton, that former slave ship captain who wrote Amazing Grace and who lay on his deathbed in 1807 and confessed to those who asked what was on his mind, although my memory's fading, two things, two things I clearly remember that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. May that remembrance fill us with humility, awe, gratitude, and some measure of joy as we come to his table remembering his most wondrous cross.